friends, this is Johanna here with another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Though not on the intro with me now, Nathan joined me in this truly fabulous and riveting episode where we spoke with Zoe Tsamutsi. We literally cannot wait for you to listen to it. Now, Zoe is a woman of many skills and kinds of expertise, as she's a writer, activist, photographer, and sociology candidate. And I'm not really going to introduce her more per se, because we do that in a bit at the beginning of the episode. But instead, I really want to give a brief overview about what it is that we talked about. And this is partly because this is probably one of the most wide ranging episodes and interviews that we've done in terms of the number of topics and sort of the number of shifts that we take in our topics. Um, So first off, we start talking about her doctoral work on German imperial rule, genocide, and race science and what is present-day Namibia. And we're talking about this in the context of the late 1800s, early 1900s, and leading up to the German genocide of the Herero, Nama, and San peoples that happens during this time from around 1904 to 1908. Um, Then we also talk about her truly incisive Twitter response in late July 2020, so just a few weeks ago, to the IOC's enormous and very racist gaffe when they celebrated on on July 24th, they celebrated the Nazi torch lighting ceremony that the Nazis introduced at their 1936 Olympic Games. You would think that they would have a historian on hand to tell them that they should not have done this, but they apparently didn't or they didn't listen to them. So anyways, we get to really listen to her multi-faceted um, critique to to that Twitter, um, IOC Twitter, Twitter response. We also talk about her takes on Jacqueline Keeler's points from a past episode about racist mascotry in BLM, as well as the plantation-like structures of sport. And I really want to emphasize that you do not want to miss her take on this last issue. Um, Now, it may seem to some people that, you know, she's not necessarily a scholar of sport history or sport studies, but sport sociology or anything. But really, it is because of her of her expertise as a scholar of colonialism, race, race science and genocide that she could not be more well equipped to grasp the plantation dynamics of sport as someone who studied a lot of this. But in a different context, she is the one to be able to. Um, you know, glance at what's going on and really look more into it, do more research and really call it for what it is. So that is is really one main reason why we wanted to interview her. Now, if you like this episode, um, as always, please rate, review and subscribe to what we're doing. Um, we do have a few more text reviews. So thank you very much to those of you who, who went ahead and did that. We'd love to see those. And please get in touch with us, um, share what we're doing, let us know what you think about it. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at End of Sport Pod. You can also email us at theendofsport at gmail.com. And then we also have this really cool new website, thanks to the hard work of Derek, where you can find us at www.theendofsport.com. Now, please enjoy the show. Zoe Tsamutsi is a writer, activist, photographer, and sociology doctoral candidate at the University of California, San Francisco, and a research fellow of Political Research Associates. Zoe is the co-author of As Black as Resistance, Finding the Conditions of Liberation, and has written for The New Inquiry, The Daily Beast, Vice, Verso, and Roar Magazine. 
Zoe, it is truly a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So first off, as we always do, we really like to hear about how you have been managing during the pandemic in Columbia, Missouri, amidst social and political uprisings that have engulfed the U.S. and broader world. Um, I haven't lived in Columbia since I was a teenager. Um, mm. So it's been really interesting to um, reacclimate myself to my surroundings, which I'm also not fully able to do because I'm mostly staying with my parents. Um, but yeah, it's it's been really interesting to to see all of these protests from outside of a large city because I was I've been living in the Bay Area. Um, mm -hmm. and there's nothing here as far as I know. So it feels very much like looking inside the club from the outside and trying to, trying to keep up and, and make sure that my friends in different cities are okay. And, um, also finishing a PhD right now is really difficult. <laughs> Yeah, I can only I, I, I think of all my friends that are like trying to finish and also like putting job documents together. And I, I just can't imagine yeah. how hard that is right now. I hard to focus, literally don't yeah. want to focus on this would rather be doing anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally we totally sympathize with that. Um, so we'd like to begin with uh, some theoretical and historical context, especially as it relates to your Twitter response to the IOC's awful celebration of the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games under the Nazis, for example, uh, with the Nazis' introduction of the torch lighting and things like that. But and we want to build the foundation for understanding why what the IOC did was incredibly problematic. And so what we want to do is start by hearing about your research on German imperialism, European bioscience, and Germany's genocide against the Herero and Nama and San peoples in Namibia from 1904 to 1908. So could you give us a bit of an overview of imper Imperial Germany's rule over what is present-day Namibia, as well as the genocide, and sort of what did European science have to do with it? Yeah. Um, so to kind of, to be as, as kind of brief as possible, um, German colonization in present Namibia, South, German Southwest Africa began in 1884, um, shortly after the Berlin Conference. And, you know, Germany was a relative latecomer to uh, colonialism and colonial settlement settlement in present Namibia specifically was driven by kind of mining interests, specifically kind of diamond and copper mining and farming, uh, mm -hmm. even though most of the country is is desert. Um, and of course, with all kind of colonial settler projects, there was um, kind of an inequality of, of race relations from the very beginning and what might have been a kind of cordial relationship between the Germans and different indigenous communities was kind of completely eroded by uh, structures of racially uh, disparate uh, uh, laws um, and, and ideas around like land ownership and uh, property ownership. Um, those eroded and degraded relationships turned into indigenous uprisings, attacks against um, German owned farmland and the like. And those different kind of skirmishes were formalized into a military strategy after the Battle of Waterberg in August 1904, mm. which really mm. um, marks the formalization of a German military strategy where the Germans like pretty brutally put down um, an uprising of Herero people. Uh, shortly after the Battle of Waterberg um, in October of 1904, um, the German general Lothar von Trotha issued what 
is described as um, an extermination order, which was basically um, a declaration of intent to destroy the Herero people, literally saying that, you know, if you if you do not leave, you will be you will be killed. Um, and then after the declaration was rescinded um, a couple of months later, the Germans um, instituted a system of concentration camps to both finish clearing the land um, and also to, to contain the Herero and Nama people, um, obviously in a genocidal manner, because the majority of people, you know, did not su- uh, survive the concentration camps, whether it was because of, you know, overwork or it was disease or, or whatever else. Um, and science is central to all of this uh, for a few reasons, but I think most importantly, you know, the guiding ideology of German uh, colonial expansion was this idea of Lebensraum, which we're familiar because it was so central to the Nazi colonization of Europe. Um, but it was a geopolitical idea that also animated German colonialism. And it was adapted from a German biologist, Oskar Pichel, who was describing species interaction um, in response to Darwin's Origin of the Species. Um, and it was appropriated into the realm of kind of human social and political behavior um, in the same way that there in that moment of, of the kind of golden age of scientific racism that there were and there have been historical desires to try to use the laws that govern nature to also describe and govern human sociality and kind of naturalize patterns and, and domination um, and oppression to kind of naturalize the inferiority of African natives, which justified the the theft of their land um, and justified the positioning of Germans as superior people. Wow. Thank you so much for laying that out, like really very concisely, but also by like hitting a lot of the points that I would, I would guess that most of our readers don't know. And certainly things that I, I was not aware of as a historian. Um, and I just have like a few kind of minor follow-ups. Um, yeah. So I, I, to what extent, how do I say this? Okay. So you talked about how this idea of Lebensraum, that this is taken from a German biologist. Um, now is this when it's taken from him and used to sort of explain or like justify, um, territorial and, and, you know, labor expansion, is this done by like political leaders? Is it done by, um, like colonizers on the ground who are trying to expand their market? So sort of how, how does that actually play out? Yeah, it's it's done by uh, geographers, um, mm. German geographers. So, like Theodor Ratzel um, was was the kind of major um, the kind of the major figure who kind of brought it out of this realm of biological science and into um, into the realm of human geography and talking about how you know just as animal species are influenced by the spaces in which they are able to live and to grow. Um, so too are humans, um, which then, of course, was appropriated in all kinds of different ways um, in, in literally saying, you know, in order for the German people to have space to live, um, there can be no other there can be no other people. There can be no other obstacles to the kind of expansion um, of Germanness, which obviously is is completely genocidal in nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what you're, what you're explaining here also really shows how 
how do we say when we, when we tip when most I would say Americans think of like genocide, they think of the Holocaust and they think, oh, well, like, you know, the Nazis did it. It was Hitler and it was like the top Nazi political leaders and and people who know much more than that about the Holocaust know that that's not exactly how it happened. And what you're showing here is th- sort of the the origination of the the Lebensraum, which is like one of the foundational sort of ideas for the Holocaust starts within the realm of science, as you pointed out, but then moved sort of amongst like the intellectual and civil servant class, right? That it's not necessarily that it's like adopted by the state immediately, right? That it kind of gets disseminated across disciplines and, and sort of spread out that way, which I think is really fascinating. Totally. Yeah. Excellent. So, um, so you did a really great job of sort of laying this groundwork. Um, and, and so as part of your research and on your website, you, you talk about how your work, um, is, is seeking to challenge this idea of genocide, exceptionalism, and to understand Imperial Germany's race war in Namibia during this time as really foundational to the subsequent Nazi race war and genocide in Europe during World War One. And I have to say, you know, as someone who it took forever to sort of figure out how to, my, how to describe my research in like two sentences, which I always <laughs> failed at, you did such a fantastic job doing that. Um, so very impressive. Um, and so, you know, when I teach about the Holocaust, students are really determined to see it as like this discrete singular event that has absolutely no precedent as well as no legacy or anything that comes after it within European Western tradition. Um, and though I'm like always trying to sort of dispel them of this myth and place in a broader context. And so how does your research um, sort of disrupt this idea of genocide ex- exceptionalism and trace the links between Imperial Germany's race war and the Holocaust? Yeah. I mean, what I, what I'm taking up is, is, is called the continuity thesis. Um, it's basically this idea that the idea that the the structures um, and the ideologies that were materialized in German Southwest Africa um, were were carried over um, by the German state and applied in Europe, um, and this feeds into you know what so many post-colonial and indigenous and and other thinkers have been saying for such a long time, which is that you know imperialism and colonialism yielded authoritarianism and fascism. You know, Césaire wrote that Hitler applied to Europe the same colonial procedures which had been reserved previously for colonized and enslaved native populations around the world, and he says that you know Nazism or Hitlerism was not this exceptional genocidal structure that was helmed by this charismatic leader, which is how we kind of typically think about fascism, but rather this um, culmination of European colonial and civilizational violence, which was really facilitated and um, or facilitated by the shared eugenicist worldview of other Western states. Like the United States was really influential in the funding of German racial hygiene science. And of course we know that Hitler drew um from both previous imperial German genocidal violence, as well as the analogy in, in American settler colonization, you know, manifest destiny, as well as um, Jim Crow segregation. And, you know, the continuity for me most interest- interestingly kind of comes out of this preservation of institutional memory between these two genocidal uh, uh, political moments. And, you know, for example, um, it's really interesting to me that the father of Hermann Goering, who was the Reichstag president, the, the commander of the Air Force, um, his father Heinrich was the very first colonial governor of German Southwest Africa. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, there was a real carryover of the structure of scientific racism in the work of 
um, Eugene Fisher, who studied mixed race people in German Southwest Africa. Um, it was the, the, the offspring of indigenous women and, and German settler men who were called the Rehoboth Bastards. And he wrote this, this paper that was really influential for Hitler's understanding of racial hybridity and miscegenation. Um, he became the director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics in 1927, which was a really influential institution in the Nazi racial apparatus. And he also did work on mixed race children in Germany who were called the Rhineland Bastards. Um, and, you know, and then in 1933, he signed a vow of allegiance, that vow of allegiance of the, the professors, was the professors of German universities and, and high schools to Hitler and the National Socialist State or something like that in, in, in 33. And so you see this kind of direct one-to-one transfer of knowledge around um, mixedness um, from this, this, this kind of anti-Black uh, colonial project to this anti-Semitic, anti-Roma, anti-everyone um, mm-hmm. uh, Nazi project in Germany. Wow. Thank you so much for just like really like making these connections because I, I mean, I agree. And even obviously there's a lot of what you've just said that I, I didn't know. And, and I teach European history, which maybe doesn't say a whole lot about my level of expertise. Um, um, but I, no, I think this is really important. And so, you know, one thing that you kind of talked about, what kind of term that you use is this idea of like the preservation of institutional memory. And mm-hmm. so when you're like, you talked about how there's sort of like this disruption or this there haven't been links drawn between this imperial period that you're drawing so beautifully, well, not beautifully, but, you know, drawing so well for us and also the Nazi period. Was this an, was there like an attempt to like not make those links after World War II or was that, you know, people had died and therefore the like living links were not quite there in the post-war period? I think I, I think that part of the, the, the desire to, to sever, the continuity um, comes from the fact that, you know, the Nazi Holocaust was this incredibly seminal moment for, for, for modernity, I guess. Um, It was the first genocide that had occurred in Europe. It was this, this crisis of consciousness, right? It was after World War II that genocide was actually introduced as a crime. And, Mm -hmm there's this real desire to kind of, so, so there was, before I kind of get into that, there's, there's a kind of important precedent that was set by the Nuremberg trials. And it was a precedent that, you know, genocide is the responsibility of specific governments, specific regimes, specific individuals, and not nation states. So when you think about the the responsibility for genocide as being person specific, it means that you really cannot um, you really cannot try someone for genocide if the people who were responsible for committing genocide are no longer alive. And so there's mm. this real desire to think about genocidal violence as, as this like contained event that begins in 1904 and ends in 1908 or begins in 1936 and ends in 1945. Um, and, and not this, this process that, um, where time becomes a lot more nebulous and a lot more tricky, where where people who are the descendants of survivors, for whatever reason, continue to understand a genocide as being ongoing, as um, 
some Herero and Nama people feel it is because so many of the skulls of of their ancestors are still being incarcerated in um, American and German and other uh, museum institutions. So, you know, for for the for the sake of of thinking about how 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 to resolve is the wrong word, but in thinking about how to to make Germany atone for its crimes, I guess, you know, there is this just particular focus to the crimes at hand, you know, it's the trying of the Nazis, uh, Nazis at Nuremberg, it's the reparations, it's that whole kind of process. Um, and people are really, are really hesitant to think about the, the way that ongoing colonial genocides inform the present moment. Um, and what would it mean even to, to give a people reparations for a genocide that is so central to the foundation of the existence of the contemporary nation state? Like, what would it mean for the U.S. government to give reparations to indigenous communities that are being subject to ongoing and continuous genocide when that genocide is central to the existence of the United States? What would it mean for the United States government to give black people reparations when anti-blackness is so central to the existence of the United States? So I think that I personally think that it's this um, it's this desire to not open the Pandora's box. Right. Because if Germany was forced to acknowledge and give reparations to the Herero and the Nama, then, you know, there are so many European countries and other countries that would be forced to to acknowledge their own genocidal violence and to give reparations. And and no one wants to have to do that. Right. So it's a lot easier to think about these harms as being not things that are a part of a trajectory of violence, of colonial violence, but as these kind of exceptional singular events, because it's a lot easier to, to understand. And it's a lot easier to, to quote unquote respond to. Um, obviously Germany has not responded to it because there are still Nazis in parliament and it is more or less denying what happened um, in Namibia and anti-Semitism is obviously still a problem, right? Um, mm. It's this idea that if you take care of the Nazis or at least the visible presence of Nazism that you have addressed Nazi violence, which is absolutely not true at all. Yeah. What I was hearing in that is like the, the, the continuity and the discontinuity at the same time, because we have like the, the discontinuity in the state's denial of responsibility in the, what, what you're saying, right? They don't want to be accountable and have to make amends in the very profound ways that would be required to even start to begin to think about that. Um, and yet at the same time, we have continuity in terms of the harm and trauma, right? That people and generations suffer and that our world is shaped by today. Um, and you, you can't uh, erase that history in terms of the trauma. So um, it's just like, that 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 concept of like continuity and discontinuity is just a way of like reproducing the harm. I guess is like sort of what I'm hearing in, your, in what you're saying. Absolutely. Uh, and how, yeah, allowing it to linger. It's horrifying. Um, and, and we're gonna. I love that you like the way you wove together. Um, you know, you connected the United States to this narrative. Um, we're gonna definitely circle back on that really soon because I, I really want to talk about that, especially in this moment. Um, but I want to make sure that we don't leave behind um, this sort of Nazi moment, in part because there's a sports dimension to it. Um, and I, we really wanted you to do what, exactly what you've done, which is sort of explain how um, this broader 
kind of colonial uh, and genocidal context and fascist context works before we try to think about how f- sport fits in that, right? Because of course, like sport's part of that larger whole. We can't think of it isolated from that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, this is, I mean, the, one of the reasons why we, 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 I mean, we were so thrilled to have you talking with us today. But um, one of the things that like we jumped at as an opportunity to bring you on was the fact that you had written about uh, a, a short Twitter thread about something the IOC did uh, on July 24th, which is that on that day, um, the IOC did a throwback Thursday that celebrated the Nazis' torchlighting activity as part of the opening Olympic ceremonies. Um, This was an activity the Nazis were the first to initiate, which has since become an invented tradition at every Olympic Games, which is something we all need to reflect upon, of course, right? Because it's such a celebrated part of the Olympic ritual now. Um, and in the first tweet of your response, you said, y'all use Lenny Riefenstahl Olympia footage for this throwback Thursday would only be fitting, LOL, uh, which is fantastic because I, I, <laughs> I love that after what you've just given us the most like erudite and um, eloquent discussion of um, this, sort of, this sort of history. It's perfect to be able to translate into another register for Twitter. Um, can you explain to us your multi-layered academic critique of the IOC's tweet? In other words, what is your take on why this throwback Thursday was so incredibly problematic in terms of the torchlighting ceremony, the Nazis, and Riefenstahl's footage? And you know, what, I think what we're really asking you to do is like, what are the relationships between sport and visuality and fascism and genocide and all of this stuff? Um, so I just want to preface my response by saying that if I get worked up, it's because uh, Lenny Riefenstahl is my like... She is like, for, for whatever reason, like the, the very specific bane of my existence. Um, oh, you know what? Let me just say, I, I'm only to cut you off to say, many of our listeners may not be that familiar with her. Uh, if you want okay. to just quickly, cause like we love to, ranting on this show is absolutely <laughs> encouraged. Um, uh, diatribes at all times. So please, please okay. feel free. Okay. Um, so Lenny Reifenstahl was the um, propagandist, uh, the, the kind of propaganda filmmaker uh, for the Nazis. And, um, she is, you know, a pretty steadfast part of most people's film studies canons because she was, she's attributed as like being a pioneer in, in filmmaking. She kind of invented some, not invent, I mean, I, whatever she, she used some, some kind of visually novel for the time, like sweeping shots and stuff like that. Um, as a part of her attempt to show the kind of grandness um, of Nazism. And the reason she's the bane of my existence is because she, after World War II, was basically like dismissed as like a hanger on. Like she wasn't really a central part of the Nazi party, like wrongdoings. And so she was basically able to, to escape um, and kind of have her her reputation as an artist remain intact. Um, there's a whole other thing about like fascist aesthetics, and I'm not going to start like ranting about like Walter Benjamin, but um, I really hate her <laughs> oh, a lot. I want people to hear about Walter Benjamin. <laughs> no, we're clear. I've got no problem with that. <laughs> um, but the but I mean, I guess to answer your question, um, the reason the tweet was so. So basically I can like spot Lenny Reifenstahl footage like pretty quickly (laughs) Um, because there was a moment when I first really started thinking about her work, especially thinking about the work that she did in in Sudan in the 70s, um, which was kind of her like 
her re her, her like rearrival on the scene as a legitimate artist. Um, you know, I watched a lot of of um, I don't know. I'm forgetting the name of the film. The 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 Triumph of the Will. I watched that a handful of times, and then I watched um, Olympia a handful of times. And the thing that's interesting about Olympia is it's is you know it it may it stays on like the best films of all time because you know people argue that it shows that she wasn't really a fascist, right? Like it shows that she had this colorblind sensibility because she she you know she captures. Um, the the physical majesty of Jesse Owens, you know, just as readily as she would um, the Nazi upper upper the, the Nazi top brass, um, and so people claim that like that is indicative of her not being a fascist. When in fact, you know, fascists and fascist aesthetics are just obsessed with with a kind of um, a, a dominant physicality, right? They're obsessed with muscles. They're obsessed with virility, um, and so very naturally fascists love sports like Mussolini loved soccer mm -hmm. um and it was a huge part of of what he thought was like appropriate fascist sociality um but sorry back to your question um the reason that the tweet was so kind of absurd to me was that it was you know it was really waxing poetic about the origins of a, of a ceremony that was really central to 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 Nazi pseudo historiography um like I wrote in the thread, you know, until recently, I, like a lot of people, actually thought that torch lighting was like a long part of ancient Greek sporting games. When in mm -hmm. fact, you know, I think the 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 flame was introduced in like twenty the twenty eight Olympics, I think, but the the relay specifically um, was was a part of the the nineteen thirty six Berlin Olympics, which were the very first televised Olympics. Um, and it was introduced both by the secretary general of, of the kind of German side of the Olympics, Karl Diem, and the minister, the Nazi minister of propaganda, Goebbels. And basically, you know, Olympia, which is Reifenstahl's Nazi funded propaganda film, it focuses on the athletes bodies in a ways that in a way that really kind of evokes Greek sculptures and neoclassicism, which is an artistic style that is like very heavily favored by fascists. Um, from, you know, Mussolini and Hitler to even like identity Europa today because of how, you know, people who are, who are kind of fetishizing a, a European as white identity kind of sees um, themselves placed into a civilizational trajectory with the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans who they see as these superior people. And the Nazis believed that ancient Greece was the kind of predecessor of the third German Reich. And so the Olympics in Berlin, where, you know, Jesse Owens swept, um, it was meant to be an opportunity for Germany to display, you know, the physical prowess and athletic supremacy of Arianism, which also made the hash, the stronger together hashtag that the IOC used like an especially unfortunate touch. Oh my um, God. Yeah. It was, it was just everything about it, you know, was this incredibly, like I, I can appreciate tradition or whatever as, as, as the next person can, but when the tradition you're appreciating is literally invented by Nazis, like I think that you need to have like a very, um, you know, of, of a very careful look at, at what you're praising, you know, especially because it feels like the Olympics are so deeply depoliticized, you know, it's like the UN of sports, as though the UN isn't also deeply political. Um, 
it's like you can participate only if you are bound to a nation state in some particular way. It's like a whole reinscription and strengthening of the Westphalian system. And so, you know, for them to be like, yeah, the torch lighting, it's super great. We're really appreciative of it. And it happened in Berlin in 1936, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, for them to kind of expect people to not be like, mm, <laughs> can we have a rethink of this is, is kind of weird and foolish and I think speaks to this depolitization of sports. Yeah. And you know what? Also, it's such a, it's kind of such a, a basic gaffe on their part. You know, like, it's not like this history is like hidden. Right. I mean, it just takes, it just takes like a few clicks around on the internet to sort of figure this out. And um, so there, there's that. And then, you know, as you were talking, I was kind of piecing together what you were saying just now with what you were talking about earlier and, and sort of, so I'll, I'll, I'll explain it. I promise. Um, and earlier you were saying how, um, the reason why, you know, the Western powers, one of the reasons why the Western powers were not wanting to put everyone on trial in Germany, there were a bunch of reasons, cold war reasons, but also because like they were trying specific people for specific crimes and not trying to actually like denazify the country because you'd have to put everybody on trial. And then you'd have to actually put all of like West Western civilization on trial because it all comes from this same um, sort of racist um, colonialist society that we're all, you know the, that makes up the West. But then what you also have with the IOC in 1936 by sort of adopting this Nazi um, tradition, then you have this sort of inter- internationalization of this like colonialist Nazi tradition, mm-hmm. um, at least with these colonial legacies. And, and the IOC had already been very involved in like colonialism in general and, and Western racism and all those things. But, you know, really in terms of like making it a tradition and then extending it forever, you know, in, in perpetuity into the future. Um, it's just something that I hadn't really thought about until you started talking about it this way. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's, there's so many things that we do, so many practices that we've uphold, upheld and kind of run with. And, and either we don't actually know where they came from because that, you know, that is what kind of happens with tradition. It just becomes something that you do because you've done it. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's really unnerving, like how easy it is for these fascist inventions to just kind of become a seamless part of of what we understand as like completely innocuous or even celebrated activities. Yeah. You know, and what this makes me think of actually is um, it's been a while since I read it, but you know, uh, Paul Gilroy writes a bit about this in against race. Um, these ideas about um, the vi- sort of the visuality of the fascist spectacle of the Olympics and mm-hmm. the way in which like that visual dimension is part of a fascist project to like obliterate, sort of thought um, and any kind of critical understanding of what's happening, right? Like the bi- it basically perpetuates this big lie. It makes it easy because mm-hmm. you don't think anymore. And, and the reason I bring that up actually is if, like just to kind of almost theorize this sort of tradition of sport then emerging out of that, right? If this is like almost a foundational moment for sport, which the IOC is telling us it is, yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I'm, I'm going too far saying that, um, it tells me something about fandom too in this mm-hmm. kind of western tradition right because like this this to me is exactly i mean I, i've written a bit about this but 
that's what I see happening in the kind of what I see as the imagined communities of fandom, right? Which almost then come to function like these nation states. Fans suddenly think that they're part of a team, right? In this weird way, but they don't actually know each other. It's not a community in the sense that they, they interact with most fellow members, but they wear the same colors, right? The same logos. They have the same kind of chants. They hold up the same kind of symbols. And in that moment in the stadium, they kind of all come together. Mm-hmm. But they come together through the sacrifice of the bodies of athletes. And like, what are we seeing play out in front of us right now during this pandemic, right? But people just screaming for athletes mm-hmm. to be put back out there to take away the pain of their everyday lives. Their um, or, the, or the boredom, right? Exactly. Um, so anyway, that's, yeah, that's, that's all part of this to me. Um, okay, so... Let's let's do a little bit more theoretical work here because you so historically you've really laid out these connections um, and I think it's really clear. But um, I, I want to just because as we start to move forward towards the U.S. especially, um, I think it's helpful to think a little bit about um, the relationship between fascism, anti-fascism, and coloniality. So I would love to hear you kind of just break down for us why we should always understand fascism in relation to colonialism. And again, you've done that historic, like you've already been giving us the historical, um, you know, background on that in one particular context. So, I I mean, it's clear from that standpoint, but I'm thinking more like as we move forward in terms of always thinking this through theoretically and perhaps how that dynamic informs currents of and challenges for anti-fascism, anti-fa within the United States today, which is certainly experiencing a profoundly fascist moment. If it's, if, but maybe that's wrong because I mean, probably we should be talking about continuity and not moments anyway. Yeah, I mean, some of the most important for me syntheses of fascism come from, you know, George Jackson writing about prisons, writing about how, you know, American fascism is already here through this structure of, of carceral violence and, and disposability and all of these other things that he really brilliantly lays out way back in the 60s. Um, you know, something that's been really striking to me uh, has been the responses to Portland, you know, specifically, I think specifically like the Wall of Moms. Um, I understand that like there's this like particular tactical element of having these, you know, white racialized as white people, like formal wall uh, for black folks for and other folks of color. Um, and also when people are talking about this, this kind of like breathless response to mothers singing, these white mothers singing lullabies, what's ex- what becomes exceptional about Portland is not this kind of broader idea of the federalization of a state crackdown um, uh, a, a state like repression of protest, but rather it becomes exceptional that the targets or the, the targets of the protest appear to be white. Um, the most important for me kind of synthesis of what fascism is, it's this idea of uh, imperialism and colonial violence and surveillance coming home. Um, and I think Ashil Mbembe writes about this pretty also pretty like incredibly well in in his essay Necropolitics. But what we don't think about sufficiently in about the United States context is that the United States like is a colonial state. It is a settler state, um, and we don't mean that figuratively. Um, we have to think about constant. We have to constantly think about the ongoing genocide and dispossession of Indigenous people. We have to think about the fact that 
We are um, all living on stolen land. We have to think about when we are um, opposing the immigration, the violence of, of the maintenance of immigration, that we are thinking about systems of, of border imperialism, to, to use the term brilliantly kind of coined and explained by Harsha Walia. Um, we're looking at colonial regimes interacting with one another about how to regulate both indigeneity and to regulate movement between states. And so what we're seeing in Portland is not simply this kind of escalation by Trump. What we're seeing is the kind of violences and technologies um, of kidnapping, of, of, you know, shooting people in the face, of, of just this real unrestrained brutality um, that has previously been used against Black and Indigenous and other non-white communities being used in this city that is overwhelmingly white. So it, it's really interesting to me that people are highlighting the exceptional violence of Portland when, you know, look at the visuals that came out of Ferguson. You know, look mm -hmm. at what was happening at Standing Rock. Um, uh, there are so many other other moments of, of state terror. Look at what happened, you know, with the move house in the 80s. You know, all of these moments of really just unfathomable, spectacular violence against non-white people. Um, but because of the way we have come to understand that kind of violence as being acceptable and inevitable and necessary in a way, um, you know, we, that, that kind of falls away when we're trying to look at and understand what's happening in Portland. And I think that it's a very, it's a very, it's an exceptionally dangerous thing to do because um, we can't properly, if we want to talk about abolishing the police or abolishing prisons or hospitals or whatever else, whatever other carceral institution, like we can't think about them as being uncoupled from American settler colonialism. Um, when we talk about all of these other Western nations, colonial moments, you know, America or the United States is still undergoing its colonial moment. Um, you know, and, and, and we can't, and we can't have a kind of response to the state unless we are thinking about this broader history. Um, of state violence against uh, racialized communities. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in terms of most, I should say, white Americans understanding our history, right? Like we hop to those moments that make us have made us as white people feel good about it and not like grappling with the like daily violence, right? So there are, there are these like huge moments of really awful violence as you discuss. And then there's of course also like daily violence mm -hmm. in general and, and like the generational trauma. And I just think most white people, they just have like no, no conception of that whatsoever. And, and whether they're, whether they want to see it or not, I, I don't think they do, but you know, I think that's, that's obviously like part and parcel of the problem that you're laying out here. Absolutely. That quiet quotidian violence is what allows the United States to, to remain intact, right? And, you know, in our book, William and I talk about a concept called societal fascism, which, you know, um, comes from this idea that there are people who are just, by the very function of the social contract, um, included or excluded in the contract. You know, you have pre-contractual exclusion, which, you know, people who were never supposed to be a part of the contract. So that's black people, that's indigenous people, obviously. And then you have post-contractual exclusion, which is this kind of this kind of limbo of, of people who could at any moment have their rights taken away. Um, that's like poor white people, 
uh, among 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 other groups. And so what we what we have to remember about citizenship in the United States is that there's always this conditionality to it. You know, at any point, the the the, the state could decide to suspend your citizenship, as we saw as we've seen with like the droning of U S citizens um, who were living outside of the United States. Um, and I think that that's something that we really take for granted. You know uh, the, the uh, UCIS um, stopped printing new passports for people. And I think that that was something that, you know, kind of maybe got, swept away in the in the in the daily news cycle that seems to be getting like more and more and more surreal but there's this moment where like the government was like we're not giving out new passports we will only renew them or and we will only issue passports if there is an emergency so what that means is that you know the government is literally preventing and a, a, and a large proportion of americans don't have passports so what this means is like there are people who are literally not able to leave the country quote unquote legally um and combined now with the fact that you know all of these countries around the world have literally barred americans from leaving um we're in this really kind of terrifying moment of 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 stuckness you know, because so many people had planned, you know, I'm going to go to Canada, I'm going to go to Europe if things get really bad here. And now you can't go anywhere. Um, and there's something that I think is, is understatedly scary about that, that we, I don't think that we're talking about enough. Especially when there has been this movement, um, this growing ethno-nationalist, xenophobic movement in the United States of, of dictating to people whether or not they're allowed to leave the country. All of a sudden you have people being like, Oh, so someone's going to stop me from leaving. Like, well, yes, yes, they will. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I admittedly had not, no, had not heard the news about the passport thing. Like you said, the, the like deluge of depressing and awful developments every single day. And, you know, just this idea that we're like, we're sort of trapped here. Um, trapped in this like police, anti-black, anti-indigenous, anti-everything except for white, like police state is really, it was really terrifying when you think about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, we- you know, Joanna, just before you get to that, because I, I wanted to get to that question about sport, but just before we get to sport, like, <laughs> I have to say, I, I'm sitting here really, it's like you have made it so abundantly clear how all of these um, instruments for the suppression uh, and regulation and violence against non-white people right which are like the, this is this is the colonial state that's mm-hmm. what the colonial state is it's those apparatuses how that fuels fascism because once you have all of those apparatuses in place all of those laws and rules and once we like once a very significant portion of the population i.e white people have become acclimatized to seeing those things used against other people even though there's a dehumanizing logic to it obviously in terms of what makes that legitimate um but nonetheless you see those things being used and have seen them being used for decades right like it makes it possible for like, well, yeah, yeah, I guess passports are being denied. Yep. That's a thing that can happen. Right. Like, cause we know that's a thing that's, it's the thing that has been happening, right? All this police violence. Yeah. Well, that could be turned against white people now. Yeah. It makes sense. Cause we've been watching it happen to black people. Right. Like it's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, it just, I, I don't know. I found it like so crystal clear in the way you were explaining it, how, um, you know, this moment didn't come out of nowhere. This moment is like an absolutely logical extension of every part of American history to this point. Yeah. yeah. 
Meanwhile, people still don't want to wear masks, right? So like it's at every single level. Come on, man. (laughs) That's literally why no one else is allowing Americans to go into other countries because there is just this complete, just unrestrained, ah, I'm not going to get into that, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. Just disregard for anybody's life outside of their family, like their nuclear family, right? And even that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. (laughs) It's totally jeopardizing (laughs) their nuclear family. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so, so to kind of go back to sport a little bit, this is a bit of an overly ambitious and perhaps unfair question, but that's what we do here sometimes at least. Um, So how do you think North American capitalist sport plays into the colonial project? In other words, you are an expert on how fascism and coloniality manifest in the U.S. and have written extensively on how fascist thought and action seem to be spreading throughout the U.S. So, so what role do you think sport plays in this notably right-wing white supremacist shift, if it's a shift at all? And does this have something to do with the visuality of sport? Yeah. So before I answer this question, I just want to say that I am like not really a sports fan I like am bad at sports I'm only like good at soccer so yeah we respect that by the way any errors that like arise from my trying to explain this come from that <laughs> yeah and we're totally we're totally sport killjoys here okay so th- just trust me we're, we're cool with that okay go on <laughs> um so that said um there's something that's really visually unsettling to me about sports in general, um, but particularly about American sports, which in so many instances, it's basically like a billionaire white dude um, dealing and managing, dealing in and managing like overwhelmingly like black players. Um, And, you know, this feels especially apparent and glaring when we're talking about um, football and basketball, especially because of the, the 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 sheer magnitude of the revenues that are generated um, from those sports. Um, and I remember like the first time I saw the NFL scouting combine, um, and it was it was I and like no one really explained to me what it was, and I was like, this looks like a slave auction. Like the combination of like the combine and the drafts like made me think of a slave auction. What it's a bunch of like black college athletes, and we'll get to college sports in a second. But it's a bunch of like black college football players like jumping and as high as they can and like running sprints and 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 kind of demonstrating their physical capabilities so they can get drafted onto a professional football team. Um, it's literally these like white folks. I mean, obviously there are like black people who are part of this, but it's just like these white people, like watching these young black men, um, like prove them, like prove their, 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 like their value, right. Their value and their worth based on their physicality. And then however long later is the draft. Um, and based on the performance at the combine, which, okay, this could be wrong, but it's like based on their performance, it's like it determines like where in the draft they go. And is that correct? I think that's correct. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally, you're, to, you're totally correct. And actually, like what I love about what you're saying there is because this, this what everything you've just described very accurately is totally normalized for the lifelong U.S. sports fan. 
if that makes sense, right? They grow, they grow up watching the graph. They grow up watching the combines. Like, it's like, yeah, this is what we do, right? Like, this is this is how you make the NFL. You just got to go through this stuff, right? Like, and they watch it and they enjoy it. And, and I've like, seen it one participate. time. And I was like, this is, this feels kind of sick. Like, this feels exactly. sick to watch. We um, need that outsider's perspective, like anthropological perspective on this custom, right? So people can be like, no, you got to understand what you're actually doing here and what it looks like to people who don't have the same investments that you do in the like finished product or like, or in frankly, just in commodifying the very people involved, right? Because that's what the fans care about. They're like, right. they themselves are imagining themselves to be those general managers, right? Yes, and scouts. Exactly. Like the fans are watching like, I want that guy on my team. Yes. That body will do great on my squad. Right? And then it's so fascinating when, when you know, those athletes who get drafted, like, actually have personalities and actually are intelligent and actually have opinions and, and they decide to, to, to make some kind of statement or some kind of stand. And you literally have the fans saying, we don't pay you to do this. We pay you to play sports. I'm like, who is we? Y'all don't pay yes. them to do anything. <laughs> yes, exactly. Especially when we talk that college sport conversation is looming large. Uh, yeah. And it was, point. it was so interesting to me, like all of these NBA teams and, and the way that like BLM is being taken up by, by all of these yeah. professional sports teams. It was specifically Boston, right? Because, you know, Boston mm -hmm. is notorious for being this loving anti-racist city. Um, yep. It's, it was especially interesting to see people's responses um, to, to, I think there's like a tweet where the Celtics like showed the, the backs of the jerseys, which have like the athletes chosen word for social justice or whatever. And it's so <laughs> yep. fascinating to literally see, you know, a team be like black lives matter and the fans be like, they literally do not, they absolutely don't yep. matter. Yep. Um, yep. and I feel like with, with few teams, is it as like stark, as it is with, with the Celtics <laughs> and with like Boston sports in general. Um, but it's, it's pretty stunning, like how people truly believe that they are a part of, in all of these different ways, that they are a part of like billionaire capitalist classes, that they as fans, you know, by through this imagined community of the team um, mm -hmm. are the masterminds of this team, you know, the way that they criticize athletes, you know, for, for making some kind of bad move on the field or the court to the way that they talk about team politics. Like there is this real, this, this real desire to, to be able to exert and to exercise control over black people's bodies and behaviors. And, um, I just like, I just like, don't like sports that much. <laughs> Mm. yes yes no i mean it makes perfect sense why why would you i mean like i grew up watching and playing and like it was such a profound source of meaning for me that like i i, I have not been able to extricate myself from that but i mean yeah but no but i know well, it isn't it isn't i mean because when i think when i try to think through the kind of lens that you're bringing um which you know which i do it, there's not much that i like when I look at sports, you know, um, and I have to say, as like as I get older, it's certainly like I'm losing that that attachment in the same way, you know. And, I, and I'm one of the. I mean, this is just this is a bit of a side rant, so I apologize for it. But like, what's one thing we're seeing play out right now is that we have been kind of engaged in a in a public discussion, right, through the throughout the pandemic about this idea of returning to play, right, mm -hmm. and the this idea that like sports is obviously not an essential service, although 
for a lot of the reasons we've been talking about, it's treated as one, right? Because for some people, there's this idea that like the meaning that they extract from sport is essential to their lives and not mm-hmm. having boredom or, or like, you know, just giving them that kind of, in my, my view, like the sort of rejuvenation they need to fit into the capitalist system, right? Like the system is so alienating. Our society is so alienating. We need to find meaning somewhere. And watching those sporting events, like, it gives people that sense of mm-hmm. gratification that kind of lets them keep going. Um, so, you know, I, I get why this is actually a really profound test of that principle and it's kind of proving it that there is a way in which sport is an essential service for this society, but it's also, it shouldn't be, there's no actual rational reason why it should be. And certainly like we don't like these, these athletes, like the society can go on uh, without them participating. But the reason I'm kind of going down this road is just to say that um, one thing that I found disheartening is that a lot of folks who um, have been really critical of the, the sort of desire to thrust players back it's been interesting to me to watch my Twitter feeds shift from like people raging against the idea of bringing players back to as soon as the sport, as soon as they're back in the bubble, right? Um, as soon as these games are playing again, suddenly we're getting like the fandom feed again. But it's like the mm-hmm. same people on my feed, but suddenly it's like the comments are just about like enjoying the games. It's just again. like as, if it's here, we may as well enjoy it. Right. But it's like it Seamlessly. shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, right. and that- yeah, and that's kind of the problem that I have. And I, and like I should say, I'm not a sports fan either. Like I was a swimmer and I watched the Olympics, but like not that much. And I certainly don't watch NBA or NFL. But but it's been interesting to sort of see people super excited about the activism that's being shown, such as in the jerseys, jerseys and things like that. And and I get that that is an exciting thing. But again, like why are they even playing right now? Right. You know, because then people are saying, oh well, the pro sports are playing, so why aren't college athletes? Like you know, because why, pro sport, pro athletes are getting paid millions of dollars, and college athletes aren't getting paid anything. Right, right, yeah, yeah, and and sort of one thing that you had said when you, in sort of your preface to like your answer when you're like, I'm not an expert. I would say that you are exactly the kind of expert we need to hear from because you may not necessarily be like a an expert on sport or sports studies or sports, but you are an expert on colonial violence and genocide in like the Western, you know, as it manifested in the Western tradition. And so like, we actually really need your expertise even beyond the sort of sports studies realm to kind of bring those eyes and bring the expertise to the table and sort of analyze what's going on so that we are kind of like shocked out of our reverie, right? Like shot and like kind of jolted out of our pattern. So I would say that your expertise is what we need. That's just, I wanted to point that out. Okay, I'm going to tell my dad this. He's going to be so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, listen, we're, we're definitely coming back um, to, to college because we're, we're going to at least end on that note. Um, and, you know, like there could be plenty of ranting involved in that portion. Um, but the other thing that I think really connects with what you've been talking about already is this current moment where we're seeing confederate statues memorabilia and so forth being torn down across the country right um and we're also seeing in the context of sport the finally uh, a movement away from um what uh Jacqueline Keeler calls native mascotry, right? In the sporting realm. We saw the Washington football team's name change. We've seen the Edmonton football team in Canada's name change. Uh, We've seen sort of every professional team that has those strong ties at least be forced to um, in some way engage with the fact that they have that continuity. Um, And so we recently spoke with Jacqueline Keeler, who strongly argued that despite all the years of indigenous activism there were around these issues, which of course there were, right? A huge history. um, She still nonetheless said, and despite her own activism, that she felt that a lot, this recent success owed a huge amount to 
the Black Lives Matter activism of this moment um, and that organizing and resistance. I'm just curious if you have sort of any thoughts on those connections. Yeah, um, I've actually just been reading a book by um, an indigenous scholar, uh, Philip J. Deloria, called Playing Indian. And it's a really interesting examination of the kind of relationship between whiteness and indigeneity and the kind of like desire to embody indigeneity, like not because there's any respect or reverence for it, but because there's this like this idea of, of the kind of the, this like noble savage or whatever as, as embodying a freedom that whiteness can't. Um, and, and just the, I grew up, or I went to high school in a small town and the neighboring town's mascot was the Savannah Savages. Um, and obviously the mascot oh boy, was, yeah. it was, is I was always just like, I didn't really have the political consciousness I do have now, but I'm just like, I don't understand why that's a thing. That's like cool that people do. Um, I think that I, I, I am really, I'm glad that people are finally, finally decades later, you know, removing indigenous people from mascots. Like I, you know, again, not super into sports, but, uh, one of my favorite moments of just like ever was when Bomani Jones wore that Caucasian shirt, um, yes. and people completely lost it. And it's like, oh, so like you do get that it's not okay to do <laughs> like you do understand that you can't turn a human being or an ethnic group, a racial category, whatever, um, into a mascot, you know, you, you just don't want it to be you. You just don't really care if it's kind of at the expense of any other community. And I think that the reason that, unfortunately, I think the reason that it, it took this kind of black lives matter led moment to, to make those changes is I think that, I think by a matter of like cultural influence and sheer numbers, like indigenous folks just don't have the same kind of cultural capital and ability to kind of like set, set trends and, and, and political discourses in the same way that black people do. I think that that's really a shame. I think that's really devastating because there are so many, so many things around environmentalism and politics and mutual aid and culture and, and just, and religion, just so many things that we ought to be learning from indigenous communities. But um, for all of the reasons relating to settler genocide, we just don't pay attention to native people because of the ways that they're forced, they're, they're deliberately made invisible. Um, I mean, I, I think that, that I would be inclined to agree with, with that analysis. Um, I I can't believe it took Washington this many years to change the mascot name. Um, like it's, uh, yeah, the 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 kind of apathy is is pretty is pretty astounding. Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, and so we have to ask you a question on behalf of our criminologist co-host Derek, who unfortunately couldn't be here today. Um, and so we would really like to hear your thoughts on any connections that you see between the police, military industrial complex and professional sport. God. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're putting you on the spot with everything. By the way, I would have trouble with this question because I'm not a criminologist. Like, I, myself. I, 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 even, I thought about this ahead of time and I'm just like, I'm trying. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, despite athletes being ultra rich, 
um, and like Mm -hmm. successful to an extent, they're kind of subject to the same kind of discriminatory ideas as like quote unquote normal people. Um, There's, I'm, I'm, positive that there are like discriminatory uh like biases around like drug tests for sure um especially when you think about like marijuana use and like opioid use like with painkillers and stuff like that and like people playing or failing drug tests because they have to like deal with pain in some way because professional sports you know as much as people are are, as much as many athletes are paid is like this really punishing use of your body, um, for however many years. Uh, I, I just, yeah. I, yeah, that's, that's kind of all I got. No, you, you know, it's, you know, it's really funny though, but actually, because I'm not a criminologist either, but you are, you're 100% reading that the way that I do. Like that's, that has been my sort of my main critique is if we connect, like I was talking earlier about the kind of imagine community and fandom piece. And that's how I see it. Like the flip side of that is in order to make that fandom possible, it it requires that physical sacrifice, right. Of the athlete's body, the harm inflicted upon the athlete's body, because if they don't play like, like Benedict Anderson says that in terms of the imagine community of the nation, right. That people willingly die for such limited imaginings, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's part of this. And to me, like the athlete, no, okay. Like, oh, please, you know, don't, don't at me or whatever. Like I get it. The fans <laughs> don't want the players to die. Okay, fine. Yes. But, but actually they want them to play as if they would die. Like they right? want and it to I, be I, like a gladiator match. That's exactly it. They need to play. And you know, I, I bring this up all the time, but I, to me, it just, it was a poignant moment in my own sort of upbringing because i'm from toronto and and the basketball player vince carter was like a huge hero Mm -hmm. in toronto until you know he suffered some very serious knee injuries and and as a consequence of that you know he did he he really he committed the cardinal sin he took care of his body like i I don't i know it's like really hard to imagine but he decided at times in that era when we didn't have a kind of movement of players to look after themselves you know he was gonna not play his hardest or sit out some games and like look after himself Mm -hmm. and people the the entire city turned on he was a hero and the city turned on him uh, as this ultimate villain because he just wasn't trying hard enough he was exposing the fact that these are actually just games that people are playing in front of us they don't actually matter but like that's why people pay attention because they do matter to fans you know um and and so in order for that to happen there's this incredible tool and part of it that we also don't think about for me is that like so there's the physical sacrifice and that that has a long-term toll as well right because then people have to live with the consequences and in football they have to live with brain trauma, traumatic right? brain and, injury, right? Exactly, but I mean that that that's also the case that they have to live with the long term knee injuries, right? And like I t- I've interviewed athletes who talked about how you know they're in their thirties and they can't lift their children up, yeah. right? And you know what? That's pretty shitty too, um, as a long term consequence. But then there's also an emotional side to this that mm-hmm. people don't think about because and this is the weirdest part. It's actually the it's like the narcotic experience that comes from being the center of all that adulation mm-hmm. um the backlash of that is that when your career is over you will never experience that again no. and none of us here like none of us have ever experienced that but when you talk to any athlete like that that is literally like the best thing that could ever happen to you chris bosch was told he was going to die if he kept playing basketball and he tried to ignore all of his physicians and he did everything he could and he was legally prohibited from getting back on the court but he knew it and he still wanted to get back on the court because he just couldn't experience that again and we have no provisions in our society whatsoever to help people cope with that right I like, think we, that, yeah, like yeah. sports yeah, go on. sports offers i think this like real opportunity for like 
emotional development. Like it's, it's this real, it's this, you know, I played like club and then like high school soccer, whatever, nothing like super fancy, but like, there's this, this idea of like interdependence. There's this idea of like support, you know, you go through tough losses, you go through big wins, you know, there's dealing with, I guess in our case, it was like our parents and like our coaching personalities and whatever, but it's, it's this really, I think it could be this really incredible opportunity for, to understand like friendship, but then, oh gosh, I forget there. Ronald Acuna maybe? Was it, it's, it was like these two uh, baseball players. I think they played for Atlanta okay, and they yes, were like yes. hugging each other in yes. the dugout. And they're exactly. like, that was like a viral photo of that or something like that. They're yeah, like yeah, yeah. best friends. And like someone was having a hard day and he was like rubbing his head and like embracing it. And I was like, I mean, it didn't really register to me like as anything super like drastic other than like, I really appreciate when like men embrace one another and like are affectionate with one another. But people were like going absolutely crazy about it. They were just like, that's gay and that's this and this and that. And, and any positive like potential for sports is like completely ruined by like I guess professional sports like it's completely ruined by like racial capitalism it's completely ruined by all of these um like societally circulated ideas of like what a man is supposed to be and a man is supposed to be virile all the time and he's never supposed to show pain or vulnerability he's not supposed to take care of himself like he's supposed to be like this self-sacrificial kamikaze that works only for the good of the team because the team is greater than the individual right like it's this it's like it's like a death cult kind of in the same way yes. that, that capitalism is this death cult. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Exactly. It's a total perversion of this principle of what sport could be, right? To these yeah. exactly to these racial capitalist ends. That's exactly what's happening. So they instrumentalize this potentially beautiful thing. And then the problem is like it's not just at the college or professional level that it happens, but because we have to train people yeah. to be the appropriate subjects, we, we that's how we teach our kids to play too. And then the worst part of it on some level is that like we actually then justify that by falling back on the same kind of like, but but they become platitudes. The things you said initially, which were right, that like people do learn that there's an it's emotional building character. Dimension. Exactly, that's exactly it. It's building character, right? It's really good for you. And so we have all this again. I feel like bullshit kind of health promotion logic. That's like, well, sport is inherently good. We need like we, it's actually always in every case better for people to be playing sports than not playing sports. So we can we can all agree that as a public health imperative, more sport participation is good. And there's like a but body actually, fascism in that, right? Like yes. it's not just about like health in the terms of like it's good. To, no one's talking about like cardiovascular activity is good. And like the 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 way that you can improve hand eye coordination and mental health and sleep and whatever it's never about that right like the subtext is always it's good for your health because it will make ensure that you're not fat that's that's all exactly it, is. it that's exactly what it is and so exactly. when we think about like the the fascism and visuality right part of the reason that we love sports is because we're watching superhumans we're watching right. these huge people who oh, are the, the best Ubermensch. at what they do. Yes. It's the Ubermensch all on, on, mm-hmm. on in a bunch of jerseys. It's the Ubermensch that are representing your nation, your team, your whatever, battling out with others, like in this kind of like supremacist, like this, this ethno, like national supremacist, like it's, it's, it's gross. Like when you, when you, when you kind of look at it in this like global way, right. And you kind of, 
disabuse yourself of your of your specific loyalties to your team. Like it's kind of sick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's, it's, it's pretty I'm sick. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, it's like, not only is it like the, the fit and like the, the fat phobic and the, the racist element, but it's like the racial capitalist, right. That like success that like you, we, that sport teaches young people how to work hard and how to persevere through failure in order to succeed. But of course, in our society, success means being, you know, come overly dedicated to your job, right. Like never advocating for your rights. Right. So it's like all these things so that you'll just sort of be this like complicit worker, essentially. I'm I'm sure I know Nathan feels the same way, but it really just like feeds into the kind of like capitalist society that we, that we have. And we love, we love athletes because it's like, if you're good at what you do, you get to make like $60 million a year. The American dream, right? Like that they're the best. They're actually our best the very best Americans, Americans. absolutely. Yeah, exactly, because there's never, no other. Never mind this, the sacrifice, like the intense yeah. sacrifices that you described, the physical, the psychological, the every, the, the PTSD, the brain injury, the yes. the chronic pain, like all of it, you know. And it's and it's totally. a way and it's a way for us to sort of feel as if we've, if not achieved racial equality, which is clear we haven't. But like, look. Even black Americans can be these wealthy sports stars. And like, no, the problem oh, is that there are f- so few other ways for people to be successful because of all the racial barriers, right? Because exactly. of like at every step of the way, all, all, all the white supremacist obstacles that are in the way. But, you know, of course, like we only see the positive or that's what's presented to us. You know, it's really wild. When I was in high school, um, I had a teacher ask me if I wanted to play basketball. Um, he was like, why aren't you on the team? And I was like, well... I'm like four foot eight. <laughs> wow. Like, like I, I'm like very small. Like I could barely convince my soccer coach to let me play midfield. And in fact, that's why I quit. Cause he said that I was too small to play midfield. Never mind that when I was in high school, the whole of Barcelona's like midfield line yeah, was like yeah. no taller than five foot eight. But yeah. it was this assumption that like, cause I was the only black kid in my high school that like naturally I would play basketball when in fact, like I, if there's anything that requires like hand-eye coordination, like I absolutely cannot do it. Can't catch absolutely. a ball, can't throw a ball really, can't dribble, do a layup, can't do any of it. Um, but, it's, but it's like this, this real from a young age, like this piping of black children into athletics. I mean, it's not to say that they shouldn't do athletics, right? Like in a lot of ways, like that is... That is the sociality that is at hand, right? Like it's incredibly valuable in so many ways, but the way that it is kind of structurally implemented is that it's like piping black kids into sports, like, and foreclosing any other possibility mm-hmm. depending on who they are, you know? Yeah, that's um, exactly right. And that example you gave, like, that's just pure biological racism. Right? Yeah, I mean, like, extra that muscles in our legs is something that's it. that, that person is looking at you and being like that body which for a coach right who's supposed to be like appraising these bodies for what they can produce on the team mm-hmm. your body is not supposed in basketball your body is not supposed to be the right body like he, that coach should be looking at you and be like no 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 way too short not useful at all and it's no. exactly as you're saying they are seeing so many extra muscles in your body <laughs> that it compensates they're seeing like a full foot worth of extra muscles in your body and it's like, like that. I'm just like thinking about like an elementary school gym like we there were two kids in my gym class that like ended up playing I think one ended up at Mizzou one ended up at like a D2 school that like I would try layups and I would just get swatted and I like had that memory in my head as this guy was trying to like poach me for the basketball team and I was like this is so weird to me 
There is literally nothing about me that should put you under any impression that I am an athletic person. None. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, and listen, I had a basketball. I mean, when I was at, so I was in Toronto and I went to what was um, unfortunately like a fairly segregated, I would say it was like, you know, Toronto schools were fairly segregated as well. Um, and it was a very much a, a white school, white and a lot of East Asian students, but there were almost no black students at that school. Uh, but there, you know, there's a huge black population in Toronto and the greater Toronto area. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not representative of the region generally. Um, and so like, you know, I, I was on a basketball team and we were like a pretty competitive team in Toronto's like top division. And, and our coach was absolutely telling us that players we played on other teams like had quick twitch muscles oh and God. things like that. Like that was and like, I, I am not, you know, it's not been that long since I was in high school. That was 20 years ago or whatever that I was in high school in Toronto having those kind of experiences. So to me, like there's a direct line in terms of what you were hearing, right? Like these coaches, this is all the same people with the same exact logic Absolutely. about race. And like, those are, guess what? Those are the same people that are also running the NFL combine right now. Absolutely. Same exact people, same exact people. Nothing look different. At, look, look at his vertical. Like look at, I, ugh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But let's, so let's shift for a moment because what's really interesting to me then, because we, in this, we're kind of in this territory anyway, we have all this quote unquote athlete activism right now, right? It's like we have the kind of Colin Ka- Kaepernick piece, um, but we're seeing it certainly, we've seen it in the WNBA, especially women's players have been absolutely at the forefront, although that's been largely erased from the discourse. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we referenced the fact, you know, that the Boston, the Boston situation, but also what you, what you said was like the, the jerseys that people are wearing. We've seen that in the Premier League soccer. We've seen that in the NBA, the WNBA, et cetera, all of that, right? We also see gestures in the MLB and NHL. But, you know, what I'm thinking at the same time as I'm bringing all this up is like what you've kind of said about the dangers of this sort of anti-fascist moment, right? Like, like, because the truth is, if we're comparing like an NBA game to like people protesting in Portland, (laughs) um, the Portland protests would seem to be a more potent form of resistance than anything that's happening in the kind of spectacle of professional sport, maybe. Mm -hmm. But even then, you're talking about like a really profound way in which that's kind of spectacularized and problematic because it's erasing Standing Rock and Ferguson and like truly profound moments of violence and resistance um, and, and kind of like spectacularizing these moments then in that case of like a white form of resistance that can be fetishized in some way. So um, I don't know. I'm just curious kind of how you unpack like wh- what you would make of the value perhaps of these moments of athlete activism or what they might be doing or something. Um. I think I think that like after that Nike Colin Kaepernick commercial was when I was like I kind of I'm kind of over this. Yeah. Um yeah, I hear you. it was really wild to hear like what is it Roger Goodell the the NFL commissioner talking about how like he was sorry or whatever and Kaepernick should have a job. <laughs> um, he didn't go quite that far I don't think. Did he? Or, Did he say Or he was at least apologetic. Yeah, that was um, it. He did. Totally. He was apologetic but he never mentioned Colin Kaepernick by name, yeah. but you're but right it, though. It subtext, but it was also kind of wild that it was like it looked like a hostage video. Like it, <laughs> it looked know. like you know, just behind the camera, someone was pointing a gun at him and like forcing him to say nice things about the idea that like <laughs> athletes are beyond their their physical sacrifices for their teams. Yes. I think that like there's a really, it's a really difficult line to straddle, right? Like on one hand you want, or maybe on one hand, the idea and the the intention of protests is to kind of permeate all of these different um, social institutions to, for there to be some kind of like meaningful change in the ways that the institutions function. 
but what we're seeing right now, it's like a combination. It's like the institutions attempting to to accommodate protests so that they don't lose like viewership and so they don't lose fans and so they don't like you know alienate alienate people from these imagined sport communities. Um, so you know, everyone was supposed to be like boycotting the NFL or whatever. And then the, the Nike commercial came out and people, and I saw some people be like, okay, well maybe points were made. Okay, Nike. And it's like, no, (laughs) Nike is like making all of these jerseys of like indigenous people. What makes you think that, you know, Nike or, or any of these leagues are going to do anything that doesn't, um, prioritize profit. Like there is a way that that institutions get very are very 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 good at absorbing critique of themselves and even and even performing that critique um, in order to seem as though they are self aware because they know that what people want is a particular level of self awareness but unfortunately the purpose of these social institutions is to maintain their own existence and they're they're not going to be able generally to maintain their existences in ways that aren't profit prioritizing. And so it's, it's just like, it's this like incredible hypocrisy of seeing all of these different brands and, and leagues, you know, put out their, their black life matter, black lives matter statements or do their like blackout Tuesday, black squares on their Instagram feeds (laughs) And continue to participate in this like racial capitalist dealings of people like they're refusing to allow people to, in the case of Vince Carter, you know, take care of their bodies and not and like, obviously, it feeds into this idea that like, if you are an athletic person, you are in this way, like more impervious to to Coronavirus, because Coronavirus, people are still under the impression that it's like, um, like fat people and chronically ill people and, and disabled people that they would like willingly sacrifice um, to this virus, but like athletes won't die. Right. Because like athletes are in great shape. Never mind the fact that like, this is a virus that like is pretty unpredictable. And, and, you know, and also even if you don't get incredibly sick yourself, like you could be asymptomatic and like make your family sick. Um, there's this incredible like disrespect for the agency and the wishes, you know, of, of athletes who I'm sure, you know, many of them like want to play because they love sport and they love playing. Um, but there's this feeling of being like stuck, right? There's this feeling of being like stuck into this, 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 this obligation um, of, of, of labor, right? It's not play, it's labor. Um, and it's, it's just like, for me, this, like this, this whole kind of like matrix of this, of this labor arrangement that like, that is like against this backdrop of saying black lives matter, um, and giving people the opportunity to like kneel and, and putting, I forget who that, that Celtics player, his, the back of his Jersey said education reform. Um, Yes, I can't remember. I know that Kyle. I was. I get a lot of Toronto people on my Twitter feed, and Kyle Lowry was talking about education reform uh, as well. So, but yeah, education reform. So, I'm like, a, how unambitious is that? Like, some people had freedom, liberation, education reform. <laughs> um, but it's it's just like the juxtaposition of these two things. Um, 
is pretty, I don't really know what like collective bargaining looks like in the NFL or, or the NBA or, or these like these big professional organizations, but it just feels there's, there's something about it that feels really off and really kind of unsettling. Absolutely. I didn't know if, if Nathan, you had a point about collective bargaining you wanted to make. Oh, cool. Well, I was honestly, because we were going to shift and, I, and I'll let you take it, but like we're going to shift to college sports because like, let's talk about where there's no collective bargaining at all uh, at this point, you know, because I mean, my, my point is only because I honestly, though, I agree with everything you're saying. Like, I think you were really doing justice to the topic and like speaking our language. But um, yeah, there's a way in which at least because these leagues are unionized there, I mean, you know, I'm never going to claim that I feel like labor has a kind of commensurate um, say in this process that they deserve, um, given what they're bringing to the table versus what this sort of ownership class is bringing to the table. Um, but yeah, I mean, at least there is an NFLPA and there there is an NBA Players Association and one, uh, WNBA Players Association. Like, the, you know, they are participating to some extent. And I would say that probably most of these players would not like explicitly say that they are like directly coerced into participation here. Cause as you pointed out, they do want to play. And like, I think that probably their mentality would be if they really could feel confident based on epidemiology, which they are paying attention to. And then the actual protocols in place by these leagues, if they could feel that like, this is a safe activity, mm-hmm. most much like most of us in the society right now, right. If we really felt like things that, that we liked in our daily lives were possible again in a safe way, we would probably choose to do those things. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that that's what they're thinking too. But then the coercion comes in because like we get this slippage, right? Because like the rhetoric says, yeah, great protocols. But then it's like, but are they really that great? Because actually it seems like we're getting all these positive results. Uh, and actually we don't have very good epidemiology on this disease because it's a novel coronavirus. And so we're learning a lot at all times. And so maybe that's why non-essential activities should in fact be shut down until we get the virus under control as opposed to playing games with it. Um, you know, anyway, so I think that a lot of athletes, this is the thing, right? People do not give athletes credit in this sense. People, Mm -hmm. the athletes are following this news just like the rest of us. And they are really concerned, but it is so hard for them to speak publicly about it because the backlash they get is out of control, right? Like these fans, these imagined communities, they just eviscerate them in public, right? Because they have this fundamental, just such a greedy avaricious desire for the labor that they assume that they are owed right mm-hmm. from those players to give them that meaning and and that makes it really difficult which is why i've always advocated for like our journalists should be doing at all times anonymous interviews with athletes because yeah. if you do anonymous interviews you get really powerful testimony where the athletes are point blank saying no we should not be playing right now mm-hmm. no we shouldn't under these conditions and they're safe to say it and you suddenly get a completely different discourse but instead they always want to quote with a name beside it and so we get a no, essentially a no comment, you know, polite language that just says nothing. Right. Cause they're a lot more interested in the kind of clickbait than they are the, the, the quality, exactly. which is just like a criticism of journalism broadly, not, not simply kind of just sports journalism. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, athletes, they need that protection and, and for whatever reason, that protection in like all sense of the word, is like not deemed to be valued, like valued, right. That's not, that's not where their priorities are ever. No. Yeah. So kind of speaking to that. So as we've been saying, we are really in this like truly remarkable moment for college sports and especially college football. 
Even as leagues like the SEC attempt to force players to play during the pandemic with the full knowledge that they cannot protect them from the virus, at the same moment, we're also seeing athletes in the Pac-12 mounting an historic labor action to secure better working conditions than have ever existed in a sport that I would certainly suggest has a very significant uh, plantation dynamics. Now, do you think if is there a way in which college football fits in the larger questions of colonialism, fascism, and visual visuality that we have been discussing? Oh, yeah. I mean, where to start? I, I just I went to a for undergrad. I went to a Division One school. Um, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I was there back when we were still in the Big East. And it, it was having just like even a little bit of proximity to, to uh, some of the players on the football team. What was really, what was really like unnerving was, was the ways that they were deified. Um, It was, it was really fascinating to kind of see like the reverence with which they were, um, kind of engaged by people like at parties and like on the street and people would treat them like gods if they had a good game or whatever. Um, And it was also really interesting to see how they, obviously not all of them, right? Because you have some people who are in the NFL who were college football players who are like incredibly smart, like what Richard Sherman went to Harvard, maybe, I don't know, but he's like, super smart dude. Um, But it's like, there's this other way that, you know, you're like watching these guys, they're going to like graduate with a college degree, I guess, unless they try to go pro, but they're just so unprepared for life outside of sports. Like there are all of these ways that like professor, like first of all, like be in like majors that are like not super demanding. So like I was a political science major there were like a couple of dudes in like the political science program because it's, it's like easy or whatever, which, you know, they're not super wrong. Um, but you know, they were, they, they were in, in academic programs. They're like given all of these buys or people take their tests for them or like they're given all of these like privileges where it's just like, you're going to graduate this, this man who is not prepared for any of the real world outside of like sports in this particular way. And like, you know, if we're going to go back to this like plantation analogy, I just think about the fact that like, you know, enslaved people's enslaved people like weren't allowed to read. Mm -hmm. Um, If you keep people stupid or you keep people uneducated and illiterate, like you keep them, you keep them pliable and you keep them compliant in this way. Um, if you give them all of the things that you need, cause I know that like all these dudes had like their little motor scooters and they think their like rents got paid for or whatever, like you give them all the things that they need, um, then they won't do anything else. Like they will just kind of dedicate and like focus on whatever obligations that they have to the people who are giving them all of their resources, um, which is completely different from being paid right? Which is completely different from being treated as like a worker, um, as someone who is given a wage, as someone who is able to, to bargain and to, to rally with other workers to object to, 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 to the conditions of their labor, right? You know, instead they're being treated like 
don't know, like wards, like wards of the state or something. There's a totally paternalistic dimension, right? That's what I'm hearing. Actually, really? you're putting out really terrific terms. I, I have like I've thought a lot about a lot of these issues, and you know, I have various things I was going to say to respond. But like that, actually, that's very specific frame is fascinating. You know, like I've thought through that plantation dynamic, but that that specific paternalism dimension, which is that like you just you are entirely beholden in every way, and there's this like veneer of benevolence, right? But it's, of course, it's like just a veneer. Uh, and there's so much violence that undergirds it, but like it just it creates such a sick kind of dynamic. And I've like read some of some testimonies by by athletes. I feel like I was maybe reading something about Northwestern, um, but I was just reading about some like college athletes, and they were like talking about like as much as it kind of seems from the outside that they have all of these things given to them. Like they were talking about like all of these hours that they were that they have to dedicate to practice. And then they were talking about like familial obligations. And it's just like, you know, a lot of people who are college students or graduate students or whatever, like support their families. And if we're thinking about the ways that that sport is 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 marketed to to black folks as an exit from poverty, um, you know, people don't just like go into college sport programs and like their poor families suddenly don't exist anymore. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's like, I was, I, I don't, I'm trying to remember what the story was, but it was just like, there were like, you know, student athletes for like D1 schools who were like functionally homeless. Absolutely. Yes. Um, that's exactly. and, are, and are just like living in poverty while the school is, um, is, is, is like sucking them dry. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's like the ages of, what are you in college? Like 17 to 21, 22. Like those are some like physically like physiologically and like psychologically mentally emotionally like formative years and like this is a really abusive relationship that is being constructed between the student athletes and and their institutions i'm sure that like i'm sure i would talk to some people and they'd be like this is a complete mischaracterization of like my experience and like that's perfectly fine and i'm like happy to be wrong or whatever but like there are enough of those stories of like of of like deprivation and like bare minimum resource um, offering that like it's incredibly troubling to 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 witness, especially when you think about um, poverty and and policing and anti black racism and all of these things in the United States. Like it's really really infuriating. That's yeah, you absolutely. I, I just want to actually shout out a book that. Um, I think that like listeners, if they haven't read it, should really check out, which is "Things That Make White People Uncomfortable" by Michael Bennett. Yeah, uh, who it's a good is, one. Okay, exactly. Well, listen, Bennett is talking about everything that you're saying here, right? He was a. I find that his chap his his chapter on the NCAA, and he says like the NCAA gives you PTSD is what that chapter is called, or something very close to that. And so he was at Texas A and M, and one of the things he talks about, which is, echoes exactly what you're saying, he talks about how after a game he went. Like he had to travel like a couple hours to where his child was living, right? And it was his child's birthday. And he absolutely had to make it to his child's birthday, right? It was like really important to him. They played the, he played the entire game. But yeah, he skipped the post-game activities that the team has, right? Like, because they have to regiment. It's exactly they're disciplined all the time. And they have this whole concrete schedule. He skips that and he's punished by the team for it because he went to spend his child's birthday, right? In another city after playing the game. And that's like, so there's no awareness. As you say, there's no awareness of the fact that they are human beings with families, with lives, everything else, right? Because they're not workers with rights who could negotiate those type of things. Mm-hmm. And then another part of it, another thing he talks about in that book is that 
you know, after their careers finish, some players, he felt they don't even know what their favorite food is because they're told what to eat at every meal for so long that they just, their subjectivity is completely, you know, it's like commandeered by the team basically, right? Because they're formed into performance machines. That's, I mean, that's what's supposed to happen, right? I'm not trying to say that like literally all players are machines, right? But like if the system works right, that it is turning them into performance it's machines. like all you're worried about is like getting enough sleep and, and doing enough recovery activity and doing exactly. enough like training so that you can optimize your performance in your particular sport. Exactly. And that's abusive that you use the right. I think that's exactly the right word because what kind of person does that turn you into? What kind of emotional consequences are there for living that way? And that's why Bennett's term PTSD, like it's like a military kind of experience. You're transformed into this other person. And especially in in a sport like football, where the violence is so essential as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like you actually have to be entirely comfortable dealing out violence and also taking violence. Like, because if you hesitate, right, if there's any doubt in your mind about what you're doing, then you're going to fail, right? You could never compete at that level and have any doubt about it. Mm-hmm. So your instinct has to be to destroy, essentially. And then you have to live with that for the rest of your life once your time is done. Mm-hmm. And you have and to I live think- with all of the things that you miss about the life yes. that you want to have in order to, to, to mold yourself as, as this like athletic machine in whatever way that your institution wants you to be. It's carceral. Yeah. And you know what I would add too, because we've had, well, we've seen plenty of people say, you know, like you say, you had mentioned earlier, you know, athletes want to play. They say they want to play, let them play. And it's like, on the one hand, like people make the argument like, oh, they're just brainwashed and like, okay, so they are fed this narrative that like, this is sort of what you're worth. But then also when your options are limited, that this is one of the few options that you have for you and your family and your future family then like regardless of whether you actually believe that this that you are supposed to sort of be this obedient soldier and all these things you may not have any other choice mm-hmm. so it's just like they're just sort of like they're boxed in by like you know mentally physically in, in every sense of the term i think your your description of sort of being like a carceral pra- carceral place if i can say that correctly is really really um really really on the nose and like again college athletes are like 19 years old Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like 20 years old like what okay again I'm not gonna I won't like project like my own naivete at age like 19 20 on everyone else but it's also like often like what do you know of the world at 20 like what really do you know of 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 the real violence um of the situation that you're in um I think that you know there's a combination of maybe some people not fully understanding the, the, the depth and breadth of, of the violence of the institution. And also, again, people feeling like this is it, like this is what they have. Because if you're in college on a sports scholarship, right, and you just need to keep your GPA at a certain level in order to play sports, like you're only there to play sports. Um, what is your alternative if you decide that sports is not, your, is not the thing anymore? Mm-hmm. When, and also like within this context of like, you know, you've had people maybe like cheating for you, taking your tests, like you've been been able to like skirt through um, academia and you're maybe like not that great at it. What are you going to do to like finish your degree if not to do the sports? Absolutely. Well, Zoe, thank you so, so very much for just really like sharing your research with us and like connecting it to like present day concerns and drawing that history 
from, it seems like we've gone a long way, but really kind of showing how the history from like Imperial Germany can really be traced to, to these like really pressing issues today. And we are just so thankful for your time and your generosity. And we just had, we just had such a lovely conversation with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I I was really nervous about this because I was like, what am I going to say about sports other than I don't (laughs) like them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.